The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The purpose of the criminal contempt statute is to like create a punishment for non-cooperation with Congress and that in an ideal world, the existence of that punishment would deter someone from not cooperating with Congress. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 15th, 2021. The January 6th investigating committee in the House is busily issuing subpoenas, collecting documents, and negotiating with witnesses for depositions. It is also being defied by certain witnesses, and the former president is threatening to try to stop the National Archive from turning over material related to his activities and communications during and leading up to the January 6th insurrection. To chew over the entire spectrum of issues the committee is facing, we gathered in the virtual jungle studio, Brookings congressional guru Molly Reynolds, a senior editor at Lawfare, and Quinta Jurassic, also a senior editor at Lawfare, and a Brookings fellow focusing on post-Trump accountability issues. They are the authors together of a recent piece on Lawfare on the hurdles the January 6th investigation may face. We talked about executive privilege claims involving witnesses. We talked about executive privilege claims involving documents. We talked about who controls the privilege, the current president or the past president. And we talked about whether this is all just a complex scheme to run out the clock. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 15th. What's up with the January 6th investigation? So get us started, Molly. Describe for us the universe of activities by this committee so far. It was appointed. There was a flurry of activity around the creation of the committee and the inclusion of two Republicans who the House leadership did not, the House Republican leadership did not choose and the exclusion of the ones that they did. There was this initial hearing where they heard from Capitol and Metropolitan Police caught up in the January 6th melee. And then since then, there has been a quiet period 
what do we know about what the committee has been up to? Sure. So let me start by just saying that the quiet period, um, as you described it, Ben, um, is not unusual in a major congressional investigation. Um, One of the things that we know about congressional oversight generally, so not even even specifically in cases like this one, where a congressional, a special congressional committee is investigating a specific set of events, but, you know, even just general oversight work by congressional committees, we know that um, hearings serve one set of purposes, mainly to kind of get folks to go on the record and to help to establish a coherent narrative around a series of events. But often much of the real meat of the work of congressional investigators does happen in less public ways, often by this sort of exchange of letters and document requests as well as things like transcribed interviews and depositions. So just to, again, just to start off with this notion of a, of a quiet period, I think is not unusual in congressional investigations. And certainly I think for many folks who are watching the development of the January 6th committee closely, that it was not unexpected. A couple of sort of lines of inquiry that the committee has been pursuing. So they have been um, seeking out information on a, on a number of different topics. There's one sort of set of requests that went to executive branch agencies, including the Defense Department, uh, the Department of the Interior, which has um, jurisdiction over the National Park Service and so certain federal equities. Those requests, sort of the January 6th committee picked up as a continuing of requests made by other House committees earlier in the year before the the January 6th committee had been constituted. The most expansive request that the committee has sent government-wise is a very large request that it sent to the National Archives and Records Administration. So the National Archives, in addition to being the place where you could go see an original copy of the Constitution, is also the repository of a wide range of government records, including those from previous occupants of the White House. So it is the National Archives that is the the holder of a very large swath of presidential documents um, from the Trump administration. So the committee asked NARA for a large set of documents. The process of actually having NARA go through those and determine what it is going to um, hand over is complicated. Um, we can kind of talk about the role that the current president plays, the role that the former president plays in that process. But that is where kind of the largest um, set of documents. And then the last, I guess maybe I'll say two more lines of inquiry. So one is that the committee has did make a major request to a number of telecom companies, asking them to preserve information that the committee might subsequently come back and actually ask for. We can also talk a little bit about the sort of legal framework around that. And then the last thing that I would kind of highlight that the committee has done is it has started just sort of issuing subpoenas to a number of folks, namely uh, Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, um, Kesh Patel, Steve Bannon. There was some additional subpoenas that have been announced as planned, if not actually effectuated yet to some of the organizers of, um, I believe it's the rally that took place at the Capitol. There was news 
yesterday that there was a, a subpoena coming for Jeffrey Clark. So they're, they are seeking cooperation from specific individuals in addition to pursuing information from agencies and records from the White House. Quinta, what do you think we can glean, if anything, about what the committee is focusing on based on the initial set of subpoenas and document production requests? Is it is it just they're casting a wide net and figure out what interests them later? Or is there something that you can look at and say, well, they're casting a wide net on all that, but they're particularly interested in X? I think... A little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. They're definitely casting a a wide net. Molly, when she said that the widest request went to Machinera, was not exaggerating there. I mean, that, that request is almost cartoonishly vast, including sort of all communications with the president about January 6th. Um, that's a paraphrase, but there's a, a request that in that letter that is along those lines. If you look at sort of all of the requests and subpoenas, you get a picture of a committee that's really seemingly trying to look at everything from the specifics of how the protests at the Ellipse and the Capitol were organized, what was happening in the White House that day and the days ahead of it, what was happening in various executive branch agencies from, you know, the Department of the Interior to the FBI. And now we see that they're also interested in the specifics of what presumably of what was happening at the Justice Department in the run up to January 6th with a subpoena that Molly mentioned to Jeffrey Clark, who was uh, the assistant attorney general for the civil division and who there's been a lot of reporting on and a, a Senate report that was released just the other week was really instrumental in pushing efforts to kind of sell Trump on essentially overturning the election. That's a pretty broad range of material. I will say it is true that the committee seems to have been sort of most aggressive in the requests to direct Trump associates. So there's the subpoena to Clark. There's also the subpoenas to Steve Bannon, Kash Patel, who was at the Defense Department at the time and is a sort of Trump loyalist who kind of floated around the administration for a while, Dan Scavino, who was in the White House, and Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff. And those are the subpoenas that I think have made the most noise, um, in part because the recipients, not Clark so far, but the other four, have all indicated that they plan to defy the subpoenas. And I think Bannon has already uh, has taken the most steps in that direction. And there was uh, some reporting just before we sat down that the committee is ready to set a contempt vote for Bannon to get that process in motion. So you could look at that and say that what they're most interested in is really digging in on what Trump specifically did to sort of uh, egg on the rally in the months and days before and on the day itself. On the other hand, I also think it's important to note that uh, members of the committee have made noises about investigating things that don't have very much to do with that. There's been reporting in Politico that the committee is looking at recommending some overhauls to the Electoral Count Act, uh, which is the statute under which Congress was assembling on the, the day of the 6th to sort of restrict the possibilities for chicanery around that and avoid possibility of future coup attempts, essentially. 
I think there there's also questions of, you know, whether they might be interested in hearing more from from Capitol Police. I think there's been some indications to that as well. So it's a pretty broad net. Molly and I wrote about this a little bit in a, a piece that we had on the on Lawfare recently. I think that you could make the case that that the broadness of that net, so to speak, is because Congress is trying to position itself as well as possible for any potential litigation. After the Mazars case, the Trump financial documents cases, we sort of have an indication that courts might be more interested in examining the link between congressional investigations and congressional legislating with the sort of legislating as the hook that that Congress needs to show in order to justify an investigation legally. And so perhaps you could say, well, they, they need to kind of have a hook there to say reform of the Capitol Police or reform of the Electoral Count Act in order to sort of shore themselves up for any litigation. And perhaps that's making the investigation spread a little more broadly than it would be otherwise. All of this is a very long way to say I'm not entirely sure. It seems to be focusing on a few things, but you know that picture could change. The other thing that I'd add on this is I'm um, sort of going back to where I started and thinking about the different mechanisms that a congressional investigation has available to it, um, and some of those are public facing and some of those are less public facing, and that there may be reasons to have chosen to make the committee's kind of early public stand, if you will, focused on these subpoenas to some individual Trump associates and loyalists as kind of a signal that the committee isn't trying to sort of tiptoe around Trump's role in what happened on January 6th and to sort of set this public narrative about um, its work and what it's trying to do, while also it is doing other things that we may ultimately learn more about later, again, in a, in a more quiet way behind the scenes. And so thinking about, again, the different types of mechanisms that the committee has and how those might interact with the incentives that um, the members of the committee have, like politically and substantively, to shape the investigation. All right. So in your piece, you outline several different hurdles that the committee is likely to confront. The first, which will not come as a surprise to listeners, is executive privilege. Uh, What are you guys expecting in that regard? Trump has said that he plans to, in his words, defend the privilege. Uh, So I think that it is reasonable to expect that there is going to be at least some attempt on his part to kind of gum up the works here. We already have the beginnings of that indication when it comes to the witnesses who are refusing to testify and defying subpoenas. I don't know if we've seen the precise legal rationale that Trump is using here, but uh, I'm drawing on the work of Jonathan David Chaub, who wrote a really fantastic lawfare post that we cite in our piece explaining the mechanics of how this works. Presumably what Trump is going to argue is that he is asserting privilege or he he wants to maintain the possibility of asserting privilege over whatever communications the committee might want those four to testify about. And he's probably also going to lean on this doctrine of testimonial immunity, which we saw in the case of Don McGahn, the former White House counsel. 
uh, essentially arguing that in order to preserve executive privilege, the president has the ability to tell close personal advisors that they don't even have to appear in front of Congress at all. Uh, so presumably, I think that is what he's going to lean on in those cases. Again, I I don't know um, if we've actually seen the rationale laid out. There's also the possibility that he could assert privilege over the records that the committee has requested from NARA. And there was uh, some reporting yesterday, so that's October 13th, saying that and I'll just quote, this is from Kelly O'Donnell, who's a reporter. The Biden White House counsel tells archivist of National Archives to turn over Trump-era docs to committee urgently. Quote, the president further instructs you to provide these pages 30 days after your notification to the former president, so that's Trump, absent any intervening court order. Um, I think those last five words are pretty crucial there. Uh, you can imagine a situation where Trump sues the archivist of the United States. And this is a situation that Jonathan sets out in his piece, essentially saying, these documents, I believe, are privileged. The Biden administration has waived the privilege, but as a former president under Nixon versus Administrator of General Services, I am able to assert this privilege. And I want an injunction against the archives handing these documents over to the committee until we can resolve this question of privilege. Okay, so wait a minute. We've got we've got a lot of different threads going here and I want to unpack them. Yep. So there are first of all there are witnesses who the committee wants testimony from who Trump has instructed not to testify. Now the witnesses seem to me to be quite differently situated, Molly. Uh some of them are as the press says, engaging with the committee. It's not entirely clear what that means. At least one of them has refused. So what do we know about the different witnesses who have received subpoenas and their level of cooperation slash non-cooperation? Right. So I think, again, most of the attention here has been is being paid to these four individuals, Mark Meadows, Cash Patel, Dan Scavino, and Steve Bannon, who received subpoenas. And again, I think that there's like there's a reason why they like we're talking the most about them, I think in part because the committee wants us to be talking the most about them. We mentioned before that there's reporting about a forthcoming subpoena to um, to Jeffrey Clark, and there may be other folks who are engaging with the committee in various ways and sitting for depositions that are simply not receiving as much attention. So again, I, I just want to sort of put that on the table. But of these four, Meadows, Patel, Scavino, and Bannon, Meadows and Patel are, again, as you put it, reportedly engaging with the, with the committee. Um, so the committee... Um, has agreed to, for example, postpone for a short amount of time. I don't know what short means. The depositions um, scheduled with Meadows and Patel. So we'll, we'll sort of see where those And land. just to be clear, do you, do you agree with me that that is code for there seem to be good faith negotiations about the terms and conditions of a deposition and we're creating the time in which to complete those and actually come to a negotiated arrangement before we go ballistic. Yes, I think that's that is how I that is how I would read it. Um, and I think we'll we'll almost certainly in a little bit talk about the implications for this investigation of the litigation over a 
previous congressional subpoena to former um, White House counsel Don McGahn. In that case, like that ultimately resulted in McGahn appearing before the Judiciary Committee to for an interview. And so even in like very high profile drawn out cases, often the way they are resolved um, and have been historically so is by some sort of arrangement and accommodation reached between witnesses who a committee wants to hear from in the context of an investigation and the committee itself. So I, I, that is how I sort of read between the lines of um, what's going on with, um, with Meadows and Patel. The deposition for Scavino had been scheduled again for tomorrow. This is the, the 14th when we're recording this. There were some delays in actually um, serving Scavino his subpoena. Um, they, they had some trouble figuring out where he was in order to do that. So at some point... The pursuit of that particular testimony um, will continue un- to unfold. And then there is this issue of Bannon, who, again, has said that he will he will not comply with the subpoena. And the committee has indicated that it is prepared to meet to vote on a contempt citation um, that then would go from the committee to um, the full House floor for a vote for on referral of that contempt citation to the U.S. attorney for potential prosecution. If that unfolds, the soonest that will happen um, is next week when the House is back in session. But that is um, that's kind of where we are on again these these particularly high profile subpoenas that uh, the committee has issued to these four Trump associates. Okay, so let's talk about how the president's the current president and the former president's conflicting views of executive privilege might get adjudicated here. So let's take the case of the individual who is seems most likely to honor Trump's wishes most completely, which is to say Steve Bannon, who may have, of course, the weakest executive privilege claim. So the mechanism, as Molly rightly describes it, is, all right, he refuses the House votes to hold him in contempt and refer a contempt citation to the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney then brings a criminal indictment, right? And Steve Bannon moves to dismiss it on the basis that this is privileged. Quinta, is that your understanding of how procedurally this would end up being adjudicated by the courts? That is my impression. I mean, part of why this is confusing is that as far as I know, we've never actually done this before. I mean, we're we're kind of in in uncharted waters, both substantively and procedurally speaking. We've never had to deal with these kind of conflicting claims of a former and current president in this kind of situation. And I I don't think there's ever been a situation where criminal contempt has been used in this kind of circumstance. So we're hypothesizing a little bit here, but yes, that that is my impression. And I mean, I should also say, Molly and I spoke a little bit about this in the piece. Usually, you know, the prospect of a criminal charge against you is not particularly appetizing and, and might induce most people to cooperate with the committee's investigation to some extent. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that for someone like Bannon, who not only has, I mean, I don't even know if I would describe it as weak, I would describe it as laughable, 
his his claim of privilege. He wasn't in the executive branch at the time. He was a podcaster. He's not an attorney, so he can't be invoking attorney-client privilege. I just want to say, Quinta, as a podcaster, I fully embrace yeah, podcast the podcast privilege. privilege. I think exactly. I think you're- way too dismissive of it and not <laughs> considering adequately lawfare's institutional interests in this. We will be, of course, amicus on, on behalf of Steve Bannon if this ever goes to adjudication. Right. So that's the level that Bannon's claim is here. But I, I don't think it's a coincidence that he's both the person with the weakest claim and the person who is making his living in the sort of far-right media sphere. So I do wonder if you know, actually being prosecuted for contempt might in a sort of backwards way be good for him in the long run that he can say, look how I'm being, you know, victimized by the corrupt and fascist Biden administration that is is going after me here. And so I do think that's not a legal complication or a procedural complication, but I wonder how that plays into the sort of the game theory of what is about to unfold. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, one thing to add uh, to Quinta's point about sort of the uh, uncertainty because of the history is that part of this has to do with the fact that kind of in the modern period, many of the instances in which someone in the executive branch that Congress has issued a contempt citation against them have occurred when the, the president who was currently occupying the Oval Office was the one who was directing the behavior of the person who was being held in contempt and dating to um, an OLC opinion from the sort of early 1980s, the Department of Justice has taken the position that they will not prosecute someone in the executive branch under the criminal contempt statute if that person was acting uh, at the direction of the president. And so Several of the highest profile cases in recent decades in which someone in the executive branch has been held in contempt of Congress, we've actually not seen any prosecution for this reason. Now, because we are talking about sort of the the specific issue of Steve Bannon's role at the time of the January 6th insurrection aside, but even folks like Meadows and Patel, whose relationship to the executive branch was much clearer on January 6th. The Biden administration has not taken the same position in terms of um, being unnecessarily out of the box, unwilling to prosecute them 
for contempt of Congress. Although it hasn't said that it is willing to prosecute them, right? I mean, when Congress, if Congress proceeds with this, it is making an assumption about a certain comity between the executive branch and its prosecutorial function and Congress's investigative interests, i.e. that if you stiff Congress and they hold you in contempt and refer that for a criminal contempt prosecution, that absent some reason to not pursue it, the executive branch has some kind of obligation to Congress to do so. Is that fair? I think so. I mean, the other thing I'd say is that going sort of one step further down the line of what are the consequences of one of these individuals, Bannon or otherwise, being held in criminal contempt of Congress. The purpose of the criminal contempt statute is to like create a punishment for non-cooperation with Congress and that in an ideal world, the existence of that punishment would deter someone from not cooperating with Congress. If someone is prosecuted successfully for um, criminal contempt, it does not necessarily mean that they then automatically have to turn over the information that Congress is seeking. The statute carries a punishment in the form of jail time or a fine, but it is not, there's no guarantee that if even under a successful prosecution, however long that might take. We can talk about time uh, here too. But even, even if the prosecution is successful, there's no guarantee that having done so will necessarily mean that the person being prosecuted complies with what the committee is asking for. Yeah. And actually, I mean, traditionally, criminal contempt post-date civil contempt so that, you know, if you think about it in a more traditional context, like a court, you refuse to testify, the court holds you in contempt, and you get shunted off to jail, that is not a punishment. That is a coercive measure designed to force you to testify in compliance with the court order. Then later, you can be prosecuted for criminal contempt that is the punishment. And so normally we think of a of a criminal contempt as the punitive element of contempt that follows whatever coercive measures the entity at which the contempt is directed is going to take. Here, Congress seems to be trying to skip over that, that coercive element, probably because they don't really have a lot of confidence in their coercive measures. Quinta. I think one point that I, I want to underline here is something that, that both of you and Molly have already touched on, which is just the time that this takes. When it was initially reported that Bannon was not going to work with the committee at all, there was a lot of immediate outrage on social media among sort of left and democratic journalists and commentators saying, you know, why hasn't the committee done something? You know, it's been a few hours, it's been a day and the committee hasn't done something. This is showing that, you know, they're not really serious about what they're doing. And I think that misconception is actually really important to dispel because it that way of thinking about it suggests, you know, there's a big red button that Benny Thompson, who's the chairman of the committee, can hit. That's, you know, the criminal contempt button and you whack it and then Bannon gets slapped with criminal contempt. As Molly has laid out, it's a drawn out process. You have to vote as a panel, then you have to go to the House, then it goes to the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, then it goes to the grand jury, then you actually have the prosecution. And at the end of it, 
it's not even clear that the committee will get what it wants. So I think that it's important to sort of distinguish between everything happening immediately and the committee playing hardball in the way that many people want it to do. The committee has been pretty clear that it is ready to be aggressive and that it it understands itself as being aggressive and moving immediately for criminal contempt. But even that doesn't mean that it's going to get everything at once. And especially it doesn't mean that it's going to get everything at once immediately. Well, and moreover, uh, they gave Bannon a deadline and, you know, the fact that he said he's going to ignore it does not mean the deadline has passed. Right. So I want to come back um, real quick to something that, Ben, you were talking about in terms of in kind of a more traditional setup, uh, the sequence in which we see coercive attempts to get someone to to testify in court, followed by um, criminal prosecution for contempt if they do not do so. And sort of part of why I think we have seen so much discussion of the possibility of actual prosecution under the criminal contempt of Congress statute um, in this case. Some of it, again, is because there is perhaps for the first time in several decades a real possibility that the Justice Department would prosecute someone who was previously serving um, in the executive branch for contempt, but also because to the extent that Congress and, and the House specifically have avenues available to it to pursue civil enforcement of a subpoena. Those avenues are a little bit in flux after I mentioned before this litigation over a subpoena from the House Judiciary Committee to former White House counsel Don McGahn that, again, back to Quinta's point about time, took a long time to unfold and the sort of ultimate resolution of the case without going into um, all of the the weeds here because they, they require a making the distinction between standing and having a a cause of action. But the kind of ultimate resolution of the the case was that um, there was an an agreement by McGahn to appear before the Judiciary Committee. And then it left several legal questions about the House's power to use um, civil litigation to enforce subpoenas potentially unresolved, um, depending on on kind of how future litigants would try to contest potential use of civil processes to enforce a, um, a House subpoena. And so I think that's another reason, because there is some uncertainty about how exactly that would unfold. That's another reason why we've seen the increased focus in this case on the criminal contempt statute. But that's really interesting. So the question of whether there's a cause of action and whether there's standing are potentially prohibitive issues with respect to Congress going to court to compel testimony. But they wouldn't prevent, you know, an inherent contempt citation or, you know, the sort of analog to civil contempt, right? The, you know, the Capitol Police going out or the the sergeant at arms and dragging Steve Bannon back by the hair. Right. So it is true that when we talk about congressional contempt, we do sort of put that in three buckets. We've covered two of those already. We've talked about the the criminal contempt of Congress statute. We've talked about the use of civil enforcement to try to compel compliance um, with a subpoena. We have not talked as much about inherent contempt, which Congress has not used uh, since the early 20th century. There are There's a lot of interest in certain corners about sort of Congress reviving um, the use of inherent contempt. I think there is including some legislative efforts to um, to try and bring it back. 
you know, we, we, despite similar calls during various elements of congressional investigations into President Trump and his associates when he was in office, like we did not actually see Congress try to use its inherent contempt powers in those cases. And so I am somewhat skeptical that it would try and that, you know, this House committee would try and convince the House to do that in the context of January 6th either. But you are right, Ben, that um, if we're if we're being um, completists about the menu of contempt options <laughs> available uh, to the House, that uh, inherent contempt is also on that list. Well, and and I, I guess I wasn't trying to be completist. I was trying to finish the analogy to the to the traditional first you do your civil contempt, your coercive measures, right? And you would kind of exhaust those and then you do your criminal contempt at the end as a punitive measure. And here they seem eager to jump to the criminal contempt side because they think they have the Justice Department available for that purpose. But the risk of that, I think, is that they don't avail themselves of the measures that are themselves designed to be coercive. I do think it's important to flag there's been some reporting on how the committee is thinking about inherent contempt. Mostly, it seems to be confused. Um, there is a, a Politico story from September about how the committee was thinking about enforcing subpoenas that was ranking the different options that the committee has. And it had a criminal contempt right at the very top and inherent contempt at the very bottom in fifth place under uh, Joe Biden as an enforcement mechanism, which I think they they essentially mean, you know, that the that Biden can waive executive privilege. But the what the political reporting suggested, which I think is just important to flag, just so we can flesh out the committee's thinking on this issue, is that Benny Thompson has said that uh, as far as he's concerned, inherent contempt is on the table. It quotes Representative Jamie Raskin, also in the committee, saying, and I quote, there is a growing appetite for using Congress's own contempt powers. But it also quotes uh, Adam Schiff, who's also on the committee, essentially saying that, and I'm going to quote here, this is Politico's paraphrasing of what Schiff said, not a direct quote, attempting to wield inherent contempt might still wind up before federal courts, bogging down the process for months and undermining the decision to deploy in the first place. So that, I think, suggests to me why there might be a a little more hesitation here, at least with criminal contempt. We haven't seen it in this particular circumstance, but it is something that's happened before because uh, inherent contempt, as Molly said, hasn't been used for many, many years. Congress would potentially be opening itself up, ironically, to further delay as that would be litigated out, even as it's a an option that on its face seems to be speedier. And we haven't talked about the, the problem of timing yet, but the committee has set a really, really tight deadline for itself. Benny Thompson has said repeatedly he wants to be done by spring 2022. So there's a real incentive on their part to just go full speed ahead and avoid any possibility of getting bogged down in sort of long, complicated litigation over unresolved legal questions. I got to say, though, I think Schiff's point there is very confused, and it's I actually don't see where the extra time comes from. So either way, whether you do it through civil contempt or through criminal contempt, you're going to end up litigating the executive privilege question. If you do it through criminal contempt, you're going to litigate it through a motion to dismiss a criminal case. 
if you do it through inherent contempt, you're going to litigate the same question through a habeas corpus petition on the part of Steve Bannon, who you're, you know, holding in the Capitol dungeon by the hair. Either way, you're going to have effectively the same litigation, and I'm not really sure why it should take appreciably more time. The difference is, in one case, the remedy is that Steve Bannon gets sentenced to a prison sentence. In the other case, the remedy is that Steve Bannon doesn't get let out until he testifies. And so I I think they're serving different issues. I'm not sure that the legal issue they present is all that different from one another. I think it's pretty clear that Congress, for better or worse, thinks about its inherent, kind of on the whole, thinks about its inherent contempt powers differently than it thinks about using either civil enforcement or criminal prosecution in the face of noncompliance with a subpoena. And I guess just to sort of restate something I said before, it's not clear to me what would lead the House now to uh, reinvigorate its inherent contempt power. Um, The word that sort of sometimes gets used in this, this context context is that Congress has seen the use of inherent contempt as, quote, unseemly. And so it just, it feels like if they didn't do it at all during the, the sort of investigations during the Trump years, it's not clear to me what about this particular, uh, like, obviously, what happened on January 6th is for the Congress itself, like the consequences of it are serious in in a, in a very personal way for members. But I think that, I think part of it is just that, that Congress clearly thinks about inherent contempt differently than it thinks about its other avenues. All right. I want to go back to something Quinta said much earlier, which was about the quite different way that the issue of executive privilege might get adjudicated in the context of the document production by NARA. Because here, NARA is, the, the National Archive is not going to refuse honoring to produce the material honoring former President Trump's executive privilege claim over current President Biden's waiver of the claim. And so I would think, Quinta, if this is going to get adjudicated rather than Trump is just going to lose, you would have to have a Mazars-like litigation in which the former president kind of sought an injunction from a court to prevent NARA from turning over that material. Is that how you imagine this happening? That is my understanding. And that's why I referenced earlier the Mazars case and the fact that the committee may be trying to sort of peg its investigation to particular legislation that it's considering so it can reach the legitimate legislative purpose aspect of the Mazars decision. Obviously, the specifics of the case, as our our lawfare colleague Scott Anderson would remind us, are, are a little different. Here, it's you know, once again, Trump is inserting himself as a third party, but it's material that is already held by the government. This is privileged material, where the whereas the material of issue in the Mazars case was not privileged, but Trump was nevertheless arguing that you know it, 
Congress obtaining it would raise constitutional concerns because he was the president. So it's not a a one-to-one match. But certainly, if I were the committee, I would expect that Trump would try the same tactic that he used in Mazars and use some of the language in the court's opinion there to sort of arm himself and suggest that Congress doesn't have the power to go after this information. So this is the case that seems to me to potentially present most cleanly the question of who controls the executive privilege, you know, the current president or a prior president, right? Because here you say it's documents, it's not testimony, there's no podcaster issue, there are records that might otherwise be subject to executive privilege. The current president has waived any privilege, the prior president has not. I got to say, knowing the passing language in Nixon v. Administrator of GSA, I find it very hard to believe that any court is likely to enjoin the production of documents that the executive branch wants to produce, that Congress demands and the executive branch does not object to providing. Do either of you think that a ruling on Trump's behalf here is actually plausible? So two points. First off, for listeners who aren't familiar, I think it's probably worth giving a super brief overview of uh, the Nixon case that you're mentioning there. So this is a case where Nixon is no longer the president, and the Supreme Court does rule that the executive privilege, and I quote, survives the individual president's tenure, and that, quote, a former president may also be heard to assert, end quote, executive privilege. So that's sort of what Trump is going to be hanging his legal claims on. But just to be clear about that, they did not say that the foreign, they say the privilege survives, and they kind of leave open the question of whether they say he may be heard to to make the claim, but they didn't say whether if he claims executive privilege over the objection of the current president, that that has any standing, right? That's correct. And so for that reason, I think there's sort of a question mark about to what extent Trump could actually succeed with that argument. But again, and again, I'm going to draw on Jonathan's great work here. I think the question is less whether Trump would win in the end and whether he could draw out the litigation for long enough, because he just has to make it past spring 2022, that the question is just no longer relevant because the committee can no longer get the information or no longer has any use for it. And in that, I think it's, you can see a kind of a repeat of his strategy with both the Mazars and McGann cases where the objective was less to win the case and more just to run out the clock. Does that sound right to you, Molly? Uh, It does. And yeah, I mean, I think that that so much of kind of what we're seeing is both about the substantive arguments and also about how much time can be consumed in litigating them. All right. So let's talk about running out the clock, because I agree with you that is clearly part of the strategy here. But it seems to me to rely on two factors that might not be present in other circumstances. Uh, One is you could run out the clock in prior cases because the Justice Department was going to weigh in on the others on the side of the recalcitrant witnesses. You don't have that now. And number two, 
the average, while it may be true that it is beneficial for Steve Bannon to get a criminal case filed against him, that is not true of the average witness. And so I'm I'm curious whether the run out the clock strategy actually is viable here. Like maybe Steve Bannon can run out the clock for himself, but you know, some of the other witnesses are quote, engaging with the committee, which suggests that they're not like relishing a criminal indictment. Yeah, I think that second point in particular is um, really important, Ben, and that it's part of why I mentioned that, you know, we're talking mostly about these like four highest profile subpoenas, in part because I think the committee wants us to be sort of wants us collectively to be focused on them. But I think this is a place where it's useful to remember um, in the context of the first Trump impeachment trial, that the point at which House committees started to get real information from people is when they started pursuing information from folks whose incentives did not perfectly align with those of President Trump. Um, And so I think that as this investigation unfolds, more folks who kind of analogously fall into that category will also be asked to cooperate with the committee. And, you know, that work is likely starting um, ongoing, and we just aren't seeing it as much in the headlines. But I do think that that is going to be a really important component of what happens with the committee. I think one way to look at this is sort of, you know, Trump as a stress test for congressional investigatory and oversight powers. We saw how much he could get away with by running out the clock when he was the president. And now we're sort of in phase two of the stress test with Trump, you know, exerting executive privilege as a former president. And so if he is not able to run out the clock here, if the committee is able to make headway, I will be very hardened by the fact that it would seem like a lot of the difficulties that Congress ran into during the Trump administration were perhaps created by the fact that Trump was the current president and are no longer as president now. And perhaps it would also indicate that, you know, Congress has learned something from all of those experiences. So we'll see. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Molly Reynolds, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and anytime we have two Brookings Fellows as guests on the Lawfare Podcast, it is a good illustration of why you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. So get on it, people. Share us, rate us, review us, buy the merch, all the socials, you know the drill. You can become a material supporter of the Lawfare Podcast at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash lawfare. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.